people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. This week we'll be talking all about things marine, from issues facing coral reefs to the unique relationship that the British Overseas Territory, the Pitcairn Island, has with the rest of the sea. Plus, in the news, we'll hear about a skin patch that could replace vaccinations. And are we on the verge of developing a contraceptive pill for men? Certainly a tough question, that one. Or I could say, hard nut to crack. On the subject of hard questions, can you also have a go at our teaser question? What we're asking you this week is if we shone two identically bright lights from the seabed, one of them blue and one of them red, which one would look brightest from the surface? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's kick off with a look at what's been making science headlines. Helen. Humans who were alive 400,000 years ago have had their genome sequenced, or at least part of them. For the first time, researchers have extracted and sequenced the mitochondrial DNA from an incredibly ancient human. And it's offering up a whole new way of looking at human evolution by uncovering some unexpected links. Well, the findings were published this week in the journal Nature, and they come from a team at the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany. Well, these ancient fossils come from Spain at a site called Cima de los Huesos, the Pit of Bones. And trust me when I tell you that this must be one of the most difficult places to work. Check this out. To reach it, the scientists had to crawl for hundreds of metres through a network of tiny dark tunnels, then drop down a 13-metre vertical shaft. Um, but it's because of this incredible inaccessible location that these bones have been so well preserved. The humidity in this cave system is close to saturation and apparently the temperatures are a constant 10.6 degrees centigrade all year round. And frankly, the fact is that no one else has been there. This is such a difficult place to get to. They were the first ones to find these very, very ancient bones. Were people living there? Is that why the bones are in the cave? Did you know they don't actually know? This is the really exciting part of the story is that we don't really know why these ancient humans went that far into this system of caves. Could have been some spiritual thing. We really don't know. Big part of the mystery is that. 
the thing about this, these findings was strange is because these bones, based on their physical shape, were thought to belong to Neanderthals. But the DNA sequence revealed that the fossils are actually more closely related to another highly mysterious group of early humans called Denisovans. Now, I'd never heard of Denisovans before. They really aren't very well known. So it was thought that these Denisovans were the Asian cousins to the European Neanderthals. But now the big question is, how on earth did this Denisovan DNA end up in hominins in Spain? And also at that time point, because it's very, very old, isn't it? Very, very old indeed. It goes a long way back into our kind of ancestral um, family tree. Um, And there are various possible explanations for what's going on. No one actually knows the answer to this yet. This is really work in progress. Um, These pit of bones fossils could represent a distinct uh, group, both from Neanderthals and Denisovans. Another more likely scenario is that they could both be related to the ancestors of... uh, They could be related to the ancestors of both Neanderthals and Denisovans, or it could be a case of inbreeding, which is always what we hear about with these early humans, um, that the pit of bones people um, may be inbred with another as yet unidentified group of early humans that brought that Denisovan DNA with them from Asia. Hey, Helen. Well, also this week, we've heard news that maybe on the subject of big breakthroughs, we might be looking or staring in the face a contraceptive pill for men in the not-too-distant future. And by not-too-distant future, we're talking scientific timescales. That means about 10 years away. But Carl White and his colleagues, he's a researcher at Monash University in Australia, he's published a paper this week in the journal PNAS where they have found a way to render, at least in mice, but they think this should work in humans too, male mice infertile, but without targeting the production of sperm. Now, one of the big worries about oral contraceptives is that in a male, sperm are made throughout an individual's lifetime, and therefore to stop sperm production, you've got to interfere with the process that's giving rise to cells dividing. Now, that's different from what goes on in a female body because a female is born with all of the future eggs in the ovary pre-made, and they're then used across reproductive life. So all you're doing when you're taking the oral contraceptive as a female, is you're stopping the ovary releasing or maturing an egg. So when people have tried to use the same sort of hormone trick in males, it hasn't worked, and there have been all kinds of rather nasty side effects, cancers and various things like that. What this group have done is to say, well, is there a way we can actually stop the sperm leaving the body? Could that be the answer? So their approach was to look at the vas deferens, which are the tubes that connect the testes to the urethra, and they're the route by which the sperm comes out of the testes and then gets out of the body. And these tubes are lined with muscle, and the muscle is supplied by nerve fibres that become active and fire impulses into these tubes when sexual activity takes place. And the nerves talk to the muscles using two different types of chemical docking stations, receptors. One of them is called a P2X1 receptor. The other is called an alpha-1A adrenergic receptor. And what they found by making mice that lacked both of these receptors, these male mice were totally incapable of fathering any offspring. And when they took the sperm out of the mice testes, because the mice were still making sperm, they were able to do the mouse equivalent of IVF and fertilise eggs and make healthy mouse pups, proving that this trick doesn't impair production or viability of sperm. It just stops the sperm getting out of the body. So they're saying if we have a drug that can block both of these receptor types in the human, then we should be able to render a human temporarily 
infertile. So it really is a first step, isn't it? But the idea is in place. Um, whether it c- can take forwards into humans, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, very there, are, there are already drugs for the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor. They're already on the market for other things. The P2X1 receptor, there are no drugs for that. And so we're going to have to invent one. It may take 10 years. The slight downside is these receptors are not only found in the urogenital system, they're in the vasculature and other tissues throughout the body. They do things like control blood pressure. So there is a small risk they could have side effects elsewhere in the body, but they looked at that in their mice and they didn't really see any, so they think it's very promising. Yeah, very promising. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Well, this week the UK government announced changes to the subsidies for renewable energy generation, but how much energy do we generate using renewables? Well, here's our quickfire science on renewable energy with Dominic Ford and Dave Ansell. Before the Industrial Revolution, all energy was renewable. Plants, wind, water and animal power all coming originally from the sun. But the burning of fossil fuels allowed our society to access far more energy. Despite this, many of the early electrification projects were renewable. In 1878, the world's first hydroelectric power scheme was developed at Cragside in Northumberland and the first wind generator was built in 1887 in Scotland. But after this, fossil fuel power grew far faster, so that today hydropower is only about 1.8% of UK energy generation. Since the late 1990s, there's been a renaissance of renewable power. In the whole of the 1990s, about 250 megawatts of wind turbines were built, but just in 2012, nearly 8,000 megawatts were constructed. Today, 7.5% of the UK's electricity is generated by wind, a figure that is rapidly rising. In recent years, solar power generation has grown even faster. In 2012, 600 megawatts were installed, compared to only 5 megawatts three years earlier. However, it's still only about 0.4% of total electricity generation. Germany has seen much larger growth still, and today it generates over 25% of its electricity using renewables. The price of solar panels has dropped by about 50 or 60% in just the last two years. In countries sunnier than the UK, the cost of electricity from solar panels is approaching the cost of buying it from the grid, and so it may soon pay to install them, even without subsidies. Dominic Ford and Dave Ansell there. And you can get hold of all our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from the website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash quickfire science. This is The Naked Scientist with Helen Scales and with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Many medicines are administered by injection, but syringes are very costly and needles are, let's face it, unpleasant at the best of times. But Ryan Donnelly from the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University in Belfast has come up with an alternative way to deliver injectable drugs using skin patches. He's with us to tell us how it works. Hello, Ryan. Uh, Good evening, Chris. How does it work? On the surface of each of these patches, we have arrays of tiny needles called microneedles. These are less than a millimetre in height. And whenever we press them into the skin, they don't cause any pain or bleeding, but they swell in the fluid in our skins. And this allows us to deliver medicines from an attached patch containing the medicine, um, and the medicine can then be absorbed or have a local effect in the skin. How big are these patches? We can make them from one square centimetre to the size of a postage stamp, right up to 25 square centimetres, depending on the medicine we may wish to deliver and how much we want to deliver. 
What sorts of things can you put onto the patches? Will they take any kinds of medicines or vaccinations? By and large, they will once we modify their properties to tailor them to the medicine we wish to deliver. And obviously there is a lot of interest at the minute about actually making vaccination safer in the developing world. There are around about 2 million healthcare workers in the world injured per year by needle stick injuries. And very often needles aren't disposed of properly, which can cause problems for people just by coming into contact with them and whatever diseases might be on them from other people. So we now have something that is self-disabling in that when it's pressed into the skin, it swells and it becomes soft. So that when we take it out of the person's skin, it could never be stuck into somebody else. Can it work in reverse as well? Because you mentioned people getting needle stick injuries. One of the reasons needles are also used is to take blood out of people. Can your patches, as well as putting drugs into people, take fluid out of people for analysis? Yeah, what's known is that the concentration of medicines in our fluid of our skin is in balance with the concentration in our blood. And because our microneedles work by swelling in this fluid, We also extract whatever's in the fluid. So it could be a way of doing monitoring without taking blood from a person. And this might be particularly useful in premature babies, for example, who are generally on a lot of medicines, need a lot of monitoring, but have a limited volume of blood and very fragile bodies. So you better tell us, what are these things made of, if you can, without blowing your patent? Sure. We um, have made these microneedles from a polymer plastic type material. There's actually the same stuff as is used in the adhesive in some toothpaste to keep the active ingredients on your teeth for longer and also in denture adhesives. How do you actually make the needles? Tell us about the structure of them. Yeah, so what we do is we take a little mould that we've used a laser to engineer. So the laser drills holes in a piece of silicone and we then take a gel that we've made from this denture adhesive material and we cast it into the mould by either using a vacuum or a centrifuge and then allow the water to dry off. Um, that then forms the microneedles, which are hard in the dry state, but rapidly take in fluid to form a jelly-like material very similar to a soft contact lens. And if I wanted to impregnate them with a vaccine or something, how would you do that? What we would do is we would simply take a conventional a flexible patch like the transdermal nicotine patches for example and we would put our vaccine or our medicine into that and then simply apply that to the upper surface of the microneedles such that when they swell they open up a pathway for the medicine to move down through into the skin where it can be either absorbed by the circulation in the skin or target the immune presenting cells in the skin and therefore have a potent immune response for vaccination purposes. And does it work? Have you got some tests showing that you can immunise people with this? We have evaluated it in a range of different preclinical studies, including um, suitable animal models, and we've done safety studies in people. And all of these investigations indicate that this would be a technology that will have many benefits. The key point, of course, is to be able to go from a lab scale to an industrial scale. And I'm very pleased to tell you that the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council have recently awarded us three quarters of a million pounds to scale up the manufacture of the microneedles. Congratulations, Ryan. That's great news. That's Ryan Donnelly. He is from the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University in Belfast.
Helen. Right, so tiny fragments of plastic could pose a serious hazard for sea life. That's according to a study published this week in the journal Cell Biology. Well, the researchers from the universities of Exeter and Plymouth found that plastic fragments can reduce the amount of food eaten by an important and common marine creature called the lugworm, and that could affect their overall fitness. Well, Stephanie Wright is one of the researchers. Tell us, what did you do with these lugworms? Basically, we went to collect the lugworms uh, from the beach. We also brought them back to the lab with some natural sediment. And we wanted to see whether these tiny pieces of plastic, which can be smaller than a grain of sand, these microplastics, could cause any harm at all to important species at the bottom of the food web, which is why we focused on the lugworms. And so in the lab, we maintained them in sediments. Some were exposed to sediment containing different levels of microplastics, which overlapped with some environmental levels. And then we kept them uh, in these conditions for about four weeks, making observations throughout that time. And at the end, we also quantified their energy reserves as well. And what we found is that actually in very high levels of microplastics, the lugworms reduce their feeding activity. Um, and in some levels which overlapped those reported for the environment, they actually had uh, a lower amount of energy available for important processes such as growth and reproduction. So these microplastics, these tiny fragments of plastics, we do find these in the marine environment. They are out there, aren't they? That's right, yes. Um, and actually trends have so far indicated that their abundance in the marine environment is increasing and they can be in the sea surface in the water column in the seabed so they really are widespread and where do they come from they tend to mainly come down from the breakdown of larger plastic items. So everyone knows that plastic litter is an issue for the sea. But scientists have found that this actually breaks down um, over time into smaller and smaller pieces, um, into fragments of plastic. But we also actually get microplastics purposely manufactured to be of a microscopic size. And that's the products such as skin exfoliators, so for toiletries, toothpaste, and also, even clothing, they produce lots of synthetic fibres which sort of come out of your washing machine effluent into the sea. So there's actually quite a wide range of sources. Essentially, these lugworms are almost getting plastic constipation, perhaps. I mean, is it, is it the bulk of plastic in them, inside them that we think is having this effect? Or, or could it be something else? Is there something on the plastic that maybe is affecting them chemically? The plastic we chose to work on, we selected because it was free of chemicals. It was free of any additives that could be incorporated during manufacture because we were interested in the physicality, the, the presence of that particle itself and what that could do. Um, so essentially, it's taking up room in the digestive passage, so in the stomach of these worms, which would normally you know, be a, a space for nutritional uh, plant matter or um, sediment grains laden with, with a vital resource. But what we found is actually this microplastic is taking up space. Um, and these worms are, you know, they're exerting energy trying to digest them. What's the consequences of this study? I mean, understanding more about the impacts of microplastics, how does this translate back to the oceans and perhaps ultimately um, back to ourselves as well? This species, in fact, is very important. It turns the sediment through its feeding activity. So when you see those casts on the beach, you know, that's a, a product of it reworking the sediment like earthworms and soil. So it's very important for maintaining the health. So any impacts on its feeding activity could have knock-on effects for other animals which live in the sediment. In terms of the wider implications, I mean, there are lots of other species that feed in a similar way, that ingest sand um, and don't show any selection. So if the plastic's there, they could too ingest this, things like sea cucumbers and 
insects and crab species and other worm species. So there's much wider implications. But I think the key thing is this is at very high levels and we just need to prevent those levels from being reached in the environment so that this doesn't happen. So really, we need to be getting rid of those microplastics in the oceans in the first place. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. That was Stephanie Wright from the University of Plymouth. Now, something else that caught my eye this week was a paper, it's in the journal Science, and it's by researchers at Leuven University. This is Bart Boots and his colleagues, and they've been looking at the question of dyslexia. Now, if I ask you, Helen, when do you think the first diagnosis of dyslexia was made? Oh, what year it was made? Give or take. Oh, I don't know, um, the 60s. 1860s or 1960s? 1960s. I'm not being as obtuse as it may sound because the first official case report was in the British Medical Journal in 1896 by Pringle Morgan from Sussex who wrote up a case of congenital word blindness. Actually, now scientists think about 10% of people may have dyslexia. And this is where people have difficulties with words, both reading but also verbally as well and with comprehension. But what's actually going on in the brain of a, a person who has dyslexia to cause those frustrating difficulties? Well, what this group in, in Leuven did was to recruit 22 people who had dyslexia and about the same number of people who didn't have dyslexia. And they played them sounds. These were nonsense words said by four other people so that they could remove from the study any bias due to one person always saying certain things a certain way. And as they played these things to these groups of people in a brain scanner, they used what was called fMRI, which is a technique to look in quite some detail at which bits of the brain are responding to certain stimuli. They were able to study where in the brain these sounds were being decoded. Because one question about dyslexia is, is it that when information goes into the brain, particularly linguistic information, does the brain not make a clear image of what it's supposed to be paying attention to? And so they compared the pattern of activity in these different brain areas that decode speech in both the normal people and the dyslexic individuals, and they found there was no evidence of the brain not making a clear representation of these signals in any of the areas they studied, in both the normal people and in the people with dyslexia. So then they said, actually... Is it something to do with how the brain sends the messages from one area to the other in the dyslexic? So then they did what was called connectivity mapping. And with new brain scanning techniques these days, you can ask, how well does this part of the brain talk to that bit of the brain? By marrying up, when you put a stimulus in, you can see whether this bit lights up at the same time as that bit and how well. When they did that, they actually found there was quite a big deficit in a structure which is called the arcuate fasciculus, which is effectively like the wiring loom of the brain connecting all the language centres together. And it looks like that people with dyslexia have too few connections between these relevant language centres, and this may frustrate the presentation of this bit of analysis that one part of the brain is doing and and sending that information to another bit of the brain to get further processed. And this is the hold-up or the sort of cognitive traffic jam that slows down people with dyslexia's ability to read and engage with certain words. Fantastic. So it really does seem like a breakthrough in our understanding of what's going on in the brain of people who, as I say, have these problems. Yeah, and they also say perhaps if we understand why it's happening and and how it's happening a little bit more, we can then begin to understand how best to intervene. Perhaps there are strategies that we could implement at a young age in order to help people to get round this while their brain is as plastic or malleable, teachable as possible, so that it's less of a problem when they're older. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Um, As always, you can find more information, including references for the papers we've discussed on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. And this week we're talking about marine conservation 
and marine science. If you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Don't forget our quiz question this week, which is if we had two lights on the seabed, one red one and one blue one, equivalently bright, and we shone them towards the surface, which one would look brightest at the surface? The British territory overseas are called the Pitcairn Islands might only appear on a map as a tiny speck in the southern reaches of the Pacific Ocean. But the 50 people living there who call these rocky outcrops their home are currently trying to create what's going to become the world's largest marine reserve. Representative Simon Yang and Melva Evans visited Cambridge recently to put their case to the British government. And Kate Lamble went to see them. Our forefathers were men of the sea and our foremothers were the intrepid women of French Polynesia. And it's incredibly important to us that we have a good environment, that we have clean, disease-free fish to eat, but we've also got fabulous coral formations. And so we're here because we are both passionate about getting this marine reserve established, and we'd like to convince the British government to give their thumbs up to our proposal. I had to look Pitcairn up on a map, I have to be honest. Then you zoom out and you're sort of trying to work out where it is in the world. You zoom out and there's just blue. And zoom out a bit more, there's just blue. And zoom out a bit more, there's still just blue. It's literally in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So you can imagine by looking at a map like that how important the sea must be. How is it involved in your day-to-day lives? When you're on Pitcairn, you're right, it's just a little dot in the middle of the ocean. It's only one mile by two. We are, yeah, we're absolutely defined by the ocean and we live off the land and the sea. The sea is the only way we have in and out of Pitcairn. We don't have an airport. Our closest neighbours are 300 miles away in French Polynesia, and to get there we have to travel by ship for two nights and one day and then take a ferry across the lagoon in Mangareva to the airport there. Then it's five and a half hours to Tahiti, another eight and a half hours to Los Angeles another ten and a half hours to London. Not only do we travel that way, but all our supplies, what we can't grow on Pitcairn, comes in via the ship from New Zealand. Being an island that's, as you just said, defined by the ocean, why is preserving it become important now? Are you viewing the sea as it being under threat and that's why you want the marine reserve, or is it a precautionary measure? People who have lived on Pitcairn Island for the last 220 years have always treated the ocean with the greatest respect. So I think it's precautionary to ensure that it's there for not only the future generations of Pitcairners, but also on a global scale. The uh, National Geographic Expedition of 2012 has shown that we have pristine reefs in our areas. We would like to protect that now. We don't want to wait until we get to a point where we have to search for funding, you know, to do restoration or remediation. It just makes sense to protect it. Let's say you got the marine reserve. What would it mean to the people of Pitcairn? What difference to the community would it literally make on the ground? It would mean that we wouldn't have to entertain the idea of having to deal with fishing vessels. We wouldn't have to consider those applications anymore because we are intending on establishing the entire EEZ, more or less. EEZ sorry, is the exclusive economic zone that exists around all nations which have got uh, ocean around them and so this extends normally for 200 miles unless you hit somebody else's EEZ and Pitcairn has three other islands in the group 
also separated by hundreds of miles. So this is why together Pitcairn Island has an enormous uh, EEZ, relatively speaking, for 50 people who live there, of over 800,000 square kilometres, so it's very large. Yeah, my name's Elizabeth Whitebread. I work with the Pew Charitable Trust's Global Ocean Legacy Programme. Pew is an American NGO, but in our London office, one of the projects we work on is setting up marine reserves around some of Britain's overseas territories. And why Pitcairn? What's so special about the waters around Pitcairn that we couldn't find anywhere else? One, Pitcairn genuinely is incredibly special when you look at the rest of the world's oceans. So we conducted a joint expedition with the National Geographic Society last year and they had with them you know, scientists who have dived all over the world, some of them five, 6,000 dives under their belts and... They came up out of the water literally, like, laughing, smiling, (laughs) so excited by what they'd seen. Because Ducey, which is one of the islands in Pitcairn, it's the most southerly coral atoll in the world. And in places it has 100% coral cover. It has one of the highest percentages biomass of top predators of anywhere in the Pacific. It is as near to pristine as you can get. You know, we're so used to seeing oceans that are overexploited that the Pitcairn Islands are really exceptional. The other reason is that we can, and this is something that we really believe in at Global Ocean Legacy, that we need to protect what we can now. And on Pitcairn Island, we have a really unusual situation where we have unanimous support of an entire community to create what would be the world's largest strictly protected marine reserve. We have an opportunity here for the British government to do something really good For you guys who live on the island, when the divers came back and said, we've been doing this for so long, we've never seen anything like this, did you guys know what was down there? Had you been diving? No, we'd not done much diving at all. We'd always thought we had something special. I mean, there are areas down there that you could go fishing and you'd be guaranteed a catch. So there must have been something special down there. We had no idea that this reef that they discovered, which was, was it 30 Mm metres down which is twice the usual depth of a reef. And then we saw the film footage and we're just blown away. I'm sorry, it was just, it was incredible. We knew that we had to do something to protect it. We talked earlier about this being the largest marine reserve anywhere in the world. How is this zone, which is so large and so remote, enforceable? Clearly, you can never have perfect enforcement, you know, just because we have laws against robbery and people still steal things. But there are emerging technologies that are making this a much more cost-effective problem to solve. So we're investigating solutions connected to satellite technology and even things that seem relatively low-tech, like just making sure that you have an adequate legal infrastructure in place is very important. So Pitcairn has a, actually a great opportunity to be a test case for a lot of these things because if you can enforce in Pitcairn, you can, you can do it anywhere. Elizabeth Whitebread and before her Pitcairn Islanders Simon Yang and Melva Evans. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Helen Scales, uh, and to have a go at our quiz, if you had a red light and a blue light, they're equivalently bright on the seabed, shining towards the top, which one looks brightest at the surface? Can you tell us? Or if you have any comments or questions about our show this week, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. So, there are many threats facing the oceans around the world, from pollution and climate change to overfishing and coastal development. And we need to understand how those threats are having particular effects on marine habitats and species if we're going to find ways of successfully protecting them. 
Now, Helen, obviously coral plays a very big part in that, but what what actually is coral? I've never really understood this. Corals and reefs, yes. Um, a lot of people look at a piece of coral perhaps and think that it's just a dead bit of rock, but it's fact, it's a living animal. It's a tiny microscopic animal, a relative of anemones that you might have seen in a rocky pool on the beaches around the British Isles, but very, very, very much smaller. And they secrete calcium carbonate, chalky skeletons, essentially, and they build reefs. So the reefs are built by these colonies of, of of animals and um, and they're very important for various reasons for the biodiversity hotspot that coral reefs are but unfortunately one of the most endangered marine ecosystems we have are the coral reefs in the Caribbean where there's been a massive die-off in one of the main species or two of the main species of coral that build the reefs a while ago, I paid a visit to Abaco Island in the Bahamas and had the rather wonderful job of going diving with Professor John Bruno from the University you of get North Carolina. All the best jobs, I don't know how you do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, assess marine biology for you. <laughs> you could have done it. Anyway, well, I was there basically to find out more about how and why the reefs of the Caribbean are in so much trouble. So Caribbean reefs have changed dramatically since the 1980s. I grew up in South Florida, and in the 70s and early 80s, you could snorkel over a coral reef, and it was just like a golden wheat field of coral, this incredibly complex community that the corals had built up that was inhabited by fish and all kinds of invertebrates, so a really biodiverse ecosystem. Um, That's changed enormously, and you don't have to be a scientist to recognize that. So the corals have all disappeared. There's still some left, but they're far less abundant than they were just two or three decades ago. And there's a, a variety of causes for that. The sea is warming, leading to a phenomenon called coral bleaching that kills the corals. There's sediment pollution, in some cases possibly nutrient pollution. But here in the Caribbean, the really big driver of coral loss is coral diseases. And one disease in particular, white band disease, wiped out what were then the dominant species, staghorn coral and elkhorn coral. Their populations have plummeted by 99%. So just envision kind of like a Carolina or southeastern U.S. pine forest where the whole forest is made up by a couple of dominant species and then within a 12-month, boom, those species are just gone. It just completely transforms the landscape. And there's certainly other things going on, but when you lose those keystone species, those what we call foundation species that built up the whole system, it's, it's fairly easy in this case to point to one primary cause. And if we're looking out for diseased corals, what... What are we looking for? What are the key signs? Yellow blotches on some of the corals are a telltale sign of coral infection. Dead portions of the coral colony where the coral's either white because the tissue has died off or they've lost their um, symbiotic zoosynthelae. Some of the coral diseases are these very clear black bands. So usually some sign of infection, either a white or a black band on the coral. So the signs of infection aren't subtle. It's, it's quite obvious that something is different, and there's only really a half a dozen common diseases in the Caribbean, so it's actually quite easy to kind of identify them. All right, well, I think it's time we went in and see what we could find. All right. So there's really no question that disease was one of the primary drivers of coral loss in the Caribbean, and it's still really a big mystery. We don't know what many of the pathogens are that cause the disease, so we don't know what the bug is, what the infection agent is in many cases. And even when we do, we don't necessarily know why it's become so common. And so it's really kind of hard to nail down whether there's a new pathogen, whether the host is stressed out. So you know when we get stressed out, we become more susceptible to common colds and all kinds of diseases, or if something about the environment changed and either made the host more susceptible, or one of those environmental conditions might make the pathogen more what we call virulent, so it's more able to attack 
attack the host and cause problems for it. My lab used to focus a lot on nutrient pollution, and now we're focused a lot on temperature, how increases in temperature can lead to outbreaks of coral diseases. I'm also collaborating with a coral immunologist um, to try to understand how corals essentially fight against disease. So corals have very simple immune systems and essentially how they, they fight off disease. And so some corals are able to fight it off um, where others aren't, just like with people. You know, some people are just naturally resistant to colds and others are really susceptible to them. It's really still a big mystery why we're seeing these increases in diseases. We really have no idea how to manage them. So we're kind of at the mercy of this, this ongoing phenomenon right now. So we've just got back off our dive. We're just drying off. And what we saw was, to me, it just seemed like a landscape that showed what it used to be. You could see these huge structures that clearly used to be coral. There were big boulders that are now dead, but maybe with few patches of coral growing on them. Um, great big spires and turrets that I think must have been these acropora corals, the staghorn and the elkhorn, possibly the elkhorn particularly at that site. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, there was all kind of caves and tunnels. There was so much structure. I felt like I was flying through a city from which like humanity had been annihilated. Didn't it feel like that? It did, It, it was yeah. just incredible. There were, there were some fish, but I guess not as much as we were expecting, just no, no coral to speak of. Yeah, very little coral, and you could, but the skeletons are all there, so the structure they've built up over the last three or 4,000 years is all still intact. It won't be forever, so you can see exactly what it was like just a couple of decades ago. We saw one instance of disease. There was the white patch growing across that piece of Montastria coral, I think. Yeah, that's right. So it was called white plague disease. So there was a, a Montastria coral with about six or seven different lobes, um, and all of them were infected by white plague, and it was just kind of inching its way across the coral colony, chewing up the tissue. But as a whole, it really was this ghostly, this ghostly landscape. Is there a chance that the corals will come back? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been no coral extinctions in the Caribbean. I mean, we're threatened with seeing some coral extinctions, possibly even in my lifetime, but all the species are still here. So if we manage to turn things around, I honestly think we could be back to where we were. It might take a century or so. But yeah, we could see near complete recovery. With Caribbean corals doing so badly in the wild, I paid a visit to the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems exhibit at Fort Pierce in Florida, where Bill Hoffman took me behind the scenes of the aquarium to see how he's growing some of the most endangered coral species. So this is Cervicornis, that this is, is staghorn coral. Very distinct smell, which are the terpenoid compounds that they use to kind of protect themselves and make them maybe taste bad to most things. That's the first time I've ever smelt a coral. That's yeah. incredible. So they smell amazing. And this is an Elkhorn coral fragment. We've started to provide them to researchers, and you know it's pretty hard otherwise to get threatened corals to bring them back into the lab and usually to kill them or to see what kills them. I think we're, we're very fortunate to be able to help research as well as, as show our public some of these threatened species. And this is a way that most Elkhorn and Staghorn corals in nature are propagated. In fact, it's known that within a, say, 20 meter or so area of a reef, chances are they're clones. They're, they're produced this way. A branch breaks off. In fact, the branches are even a little bit thinner at the base, maybe to make them a little predisposed to snapping off. And then if they land in the right spot, they'll just lay on the bottom. You can see this one is dying on the bottom where it was laying this way. But what you can also see are branches growing up. And if it wasn't being picked up on a regular basis, it would start to attach on the bottom side. And you can see that we and we use epoxy. Sometimes we even use super glue to attach them to the rocks. We've come down to the uh, to the aquarium to have a look at, at what's on display for the public. And and having just got back from the Bahamas, where I was diving on wild reefs, this one is a completely completely different scene. I can't speak of the the Bahamas, but in Florida, 
I um, sadly tell people that you'll see more corals in this aquarium than you would on an entire dive, or at least for sure more diversity of corals than you would see on a dive. And that, yeah, is truly a, a sad state. Uh, to give people a better appreciation for the diversity and complexity of marine ecosystems and why they are important. Bill Hoffman from the Smithsonian Marine Station at Fort Pierce in Florida, and before him, John Bruno from the University of North Carolina. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Helen Scales. We've heard from Mark, who says he thinks the answer to our quiz is red because he's 17 floors up and noticed that red stands out more than blue. Michael Gossage says red, but if we're talking purely about perceived brightness rather than absolute energy. So I think it's a different scorpion fish. And he thinks it's the Guam scorpion fish, and I think it's the Barchins. Right, well, a few months ago, I joined a team from Columbia University on a fantastic expedition to study the coral reefs, fishes of Fiji. See, there's no spot. There's that little saddle guy, but... We went to collect specimens to send back to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and these biodiversity time capsules will be put to all sorts of uses, including studying the effect of a new marine reserve planned for the small village we visited called Naini. We take um, a sample of the gills for the DNA. Why do we use the gills? We use the gills because a lot of the genes that we're looking at to classify these guys are mitochondrial genes, and so the gills being the area of, like, gas exchange have a lot, a lot, a lot of mitochondria. That's a good bit of gill. That is. A good bit of gill. And Maddie here is stabbing the fish with a what looks like a clothes uh, labeler. The plastic tag goes through the tail. Right. Okay. And then you put it in this bucket that says poison. Wang-a. So wang-yanga. Wang-yanga. And uh, a skull and crossbow. And a skull and crossbow. So we don't get anywhere near that. What happens next once the fish has been stabbed with the tag? So we process all of these guys, put them all in the bucket, and then we pour a bunch of formalin in here and let them sit and they soak for two days and then they get all crispy and hard and that's... And they're ready to be transported over to the museum. People are starting to realize the importance of um, marine resources that they have. Slowly it starts to sink in, but you have to actually start um, letting them know, you know, like starting from the, the grassroots level, which is the villages, the community trying to disseminate information and all the other stuff that help to protect our marine resources in Fiji. Everyone here was so wonderful. Um, the family we stayed with basically adopted us, all, all five of us girls. And I feel like if I ever go back to Nainimia, they will welcome me with open arms. I am going to miss the colors in Fiji. It's almost like life. Amplified. Well, leading that expedition to Fiji was Josh Drew from Columbia University. He's an ichthyologist who works on the evolution and conservation of marine diversity. Hello, Josh. Hello, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Tell us about the the whole point of uh, the studies you're doing on marine reserves and why we think they're important. Well, what we're interested in is seeing how reserves affect um, the whole reef ecosystem. You know, it's pretty obvious that if you go out and you eat fish, then you get those fish by shooting them with a spear. Then if you stop shooting them with a spear, those populations are going to do fine. That's a no-brainer, and that's an important conservation impact. But what we're interested in is looking at what happens to the rest of the reef when suddenly those top predatory fish are being taken out. 
And so in order to do that, we're traveling to this place, Nainini in Fiji, where they're setting up a protected area. And we're looking at what's happening before they set it up so that we have very, very solid baseline information. And then we're going to track the effects of that protected area over the next three to five, maybe seven years, and see how that protected area matures and what are the whole reef ecosystem effects from microbes to sharks. What is the nature or structure of that marine reserve? It's one of the reasons why I went to Fiji in the first place. Fijians own their reefs. So just like, you know, you would own the land in your backyard and if somebody wanted to set up a tent there, they would have to ask your permission. If somebody wants to do something on a coral reef in Fiji, they have to ask the permission of the people who own that reef. The Fijians have this custom called tambu, a period of rest for the reef where they let it go for three to five years where they don't fish on it. And what we're interested in is seeing if we can look at that uh, traditional form of reef management and imagine it as a form of reef conservation. So instead of just having them not fish for big fish or not fish during certain times of the day where they let it go uh, completely unfished for three to five years so that the whole reef becomes a bit restored during that time period. Would the aim be to create a comprehensively big reserve area Or given the structure of Fiji, which is lots of little islands, would it be to create lots of little marine areas and hope that one can sort of cross-pollinate into the other adjacent area? Definitely the latter for a couple of reasons. Um, First and foremost, because the Fijians own their reef, that means each village only has a certain area that they can fish on. And if that whole area was put into a protected area, then suddenly those villagers would be, you know, they wouldn't have access to food. Uh, And we don't want to sort of unduly saddle any one village with too much of a conservation burden. So it's definitely important that we look at this as a system of small reserves, um, particularly in areas close to where there are villages. There are parts of Fiji where there aren't a whole lot of people around, and those might be areas where we would explore larger reserves. But, you know, a reserve is not going to be effective if people, if the local people aren't behind it. And if setting up that reserve means that they can't get their dinner, then it's not going to stay a reserve for too much longer. And is your hope then that if you have a a preserved area which people cannot fish in, they cannot damage, that then this will help to seed or support adjacent areas that are being exploited to maintain the diversity and to maintain the integrity of the adjacent areas? Absolutely. You know, the fish that are going to be inside the preserved area are going to grow bigger. And bigger fish produce exponentially more eggs and sperm. And so if you provide the chance for these fish to grow big, then they're going to produce tons and tons and tons of babies. And those babies are going to disperse. And and one of the major issues we're looking in my lab is, is tracking to see how closely related those different protected areas might be by looking at the population genetics or how the relatedness of fish from one reserve and fish in a different reserve so that we can figure out um, what's the best way to space those reserves so that they form a cohesive unit and that, the, you know, that they seed each other, as you were saying. Do we know what the anatomy of such a structure or network would have to be in order to make sure fish did transit from one place to the next to maintain the biodiversity? Well, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> uh, it's definitely something that is a major research interest in our lab. Some of the preliminary work I've done, the upstream areas definitely produce more exported larvae than the downstream areas. And so very simple, you know, if you look at the oceanography of the region, it makes sense to sort of emphasize putting preserves in areas at the head of the stream so that the babies from those reserves are able to spread forth throughout the rest of the country. 
Do we know whether all fish can transit along these, I want to say, corridors between these little isolated or enclaved areas that are reservations? Or is that one of the big questions? Because if some fish can do it but others won't do it, then we've still got a problem. Yeah, and we're seeing that there's a lot of variability within it. So even fish that look pretty much the same uh, in some of our preliminary results have shown to have very different uh, patterns. And what that means is we kind of have to use what scientists call the precautionary principle, and, and that is we play our safest hand. And if there's uh, several fish that have very limited dispersal or just really can't get that far out, then we need to make sure that we set up protected areas that can uh, incorporate that information so that we don't um, pass over them and, and we don't provide them an opportunity for those populations to, to be protected. Working with Josh is uh, Molly McCarger. Now, Josh is looking at fish at the macroscopic level, what's swimming around and how many of them there are. Molly's putting things both inside the fish and on the seabed under the microscope because she's interested in the microecology. Hello, Molly. Hi. Tell us about your project. Well, so my project focuses on herbivores on the reefs, and I'm looking at the sturgeon fish family. They have these really interesting, varied morphological adaptations to herbivory because fish don't possess all the right enzymes to digest plant matter. So they have all these different adaptations, and I'm looking to see if these differences affect the microbial communities in their intestines. So basically you're getting the the gut contents of the fish that Josh has been studying in Fiji Mm -hmm. and analyzing or asking what bacteria live inside these fish. Right. So the fish I'm looking at are all very closely related, um, so normally we would, we would expect their microbes to be closely related as well. Um, but I'm looking at some that have different adaptations, um, morphological, um, chemical, and I'm seeing if these communities are different based on that. And why might this be important? So reef microbes are really important to reef health, but we don't really know a lot about how they're dispersed. They're not very mobile. So we're hypothesizing that these animals play a role in it, because of the specific adaptations that they have. For instance, one of the species I'm looking at actually ingests sediment and keeps it in a stomach-like structure, and it uses the sediment to crush plant matter as it comes in. So we're hypothesizing that their microbes will be spatially linked and spatially organized. Do you think you could use the array of different organisms that are in the fish and in the environment as a predictor of whether a reef is under threat? whether Josh needs to get involved, in other words. Well, we're hoping to set up some indicators for that. It would be a much longer study to really get it down to the fine scale we would need to to say this is exactly where the microbes are going and this is exactly the area we need to protect. But we are hoping it'll help us get a better idea of we see a certain amount of connectivity for some microbes in a certain area and we notice maybe that reef is doing better than than the others around them we may be able to tell if there's some sort of correlation to their reef health. Thank you very much. Molly McCarger and before her, Josh Drew. They're both from Columbia University. And finally, closing the show, Hannah gets heated over our question of the week. This week. Hi, my name is Nikki and I live in Perth, Western Australia. My question is, what type of animals sweat? I know that horses do, but do others too? So sweat. Do the birds and bees do it? And even educated fleas? Or is sweating just limited to humans and uh, horses? My name is Jonathan Holmes. I'm a fellow of Queen's College in the University of Cambridge and I'm a part-time lecturer in veterinary anatomy. 
Humans have two sorts of sweat gland and two sorts of sweat. The first type, with which we are most familiar, are in our skin all over the body and produce watery droplets. The droplets evaporate from the surface and cool the skin, so they are important in regulating our body temperature. This sort of sweat gland and sweating, however, is very uncommon in animals. Very few animals use sweating to keep their bodies cool. A second type of gland forms sweat by breaking off bits of cell rather than secreting a droplet. The product is much more granular and fatty. In humans, this is the smelly sort of sweat we associate especially with our armpits. Most animals do have this sort of sweat gland, but they are fairly few and far between, and mostly concentrated round the face and mouth and round the anus. They seem to be important for keeping the skin soft and flexible. Dogs and cats, incidentally, have a large number of these sweat glands on their foot pads. They are probably there to keep the pads, which are just very thick skin, supple, but may also help with grip in the same way that we lick our fingers to make them slightly moist when counting banknotes or turning pages. As Nicky has noted, horses do sweat abundantly. There is a type of protein related to albumin in their sweat which often causes it to froth. Thanks, Jonathan. So humans can sweat out as much as 10 to 14 litres per day, and they mainly do this to reduce their body temperature by evaporating water from their skin. Plus, they secrete a second type of sweat to release a more oily, fatty fluid that eventually smells and can be used as a territorial marker or signal fear and anxiety. Most other animals don't do the first type of sweating. Instead, dogs pant, for example, to keep cool. But most animals do have the second type of sweat oozing out of areas of their body, the fat also keeping the skin soft and supple. With that question sweated out, we turn to this. Hello, my name's Paul Thorpe of Wigan in the northwest of England. And my question is, do smaller organisms evolve faster than large organisms? So, does a fly evolve faster than a toad? A whale, slower than a barnacle. And if this is true, how does our body's immune system keep evolving on par with the little bugs that invade our body? What do you think? Hannah Critchlow. And if you think you can help, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Now, on the subject of quizzes, we're asking you this week if we put two identically bright bulbs or lights on the seabed, one red and one blue, and we look down from the surface, which one would be brighter? What did everyone at home think, Helen? Well, you had a 50-50 chance. It wasn't a tricky one. In the blue corner, we had Lara is Amazing, John Dexter, Jack Good, Simon Waters, brilliant marine name, thank you very much, and Tracy Mortar. They all said blue. We had fewer red, actually. There were a couple of reds. That was Fish in a Cage, another good marine name, and Nadine. And the blues have it because they're absolutely right. The reason uh, why blue should appear brighter at the surface is because red light is strongly absorbed by water. The hydrogen bonds that stick water molecules together stiffen the molecules up and push them into absorbing more red light, relatively speaking. And this is actually why the sea looks blue. And you'll know, Helen, if you've ever had an injury when you've been diving and you've bled underwater, what colour was the blood? 
very strange. It looks like hot chocolate. It's sort of dark, gooey brown. It's a very weird thing. <laughs> the other cool thing about blue light penetrating further than red, the sneaker scope, some very deep sea fish create red light because most fish down in the deep sea can't see red light. There's no point because it doesn't actually go very far. But these guys make their own and they can see it. So they have their kind of own private wavelength. It's like a spotlight, isn't it? Underwater they can pinpoint other fish and no one knows they're being spotlighted. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, well done if you got the answer right. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Helen Scales and also to our producers this week, Dominic Ford and Ginny Smith. We're back next week talking about the genetics of shape. How do embryos put themselves together and end up with all the right bits in the right places? If you have any questions on that, chris at thenakedscientist.com in the meantime. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the SDFC. My name's Chris Smith. This is RN and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.